0: For a number of years now, work has been proceeding in order to bring perfection to the crudely conceived idea of a transmission that would not only supply inverse reactive current for use in unilateral phase detractors, but would also be capable of automatically synchronizing cardinal grammeters. Such an instrument is the turbo-encabulator.
1: English, motherfucker, do you speak it? (laughs) Hello, friends. How's it going? It's Nick here with the Mechanical Advantage Podcast. Wait, that's Joe Rogan's line.
0: I want you to chug half your drink, and immediately after you chug that drink, I want you to throw me your best pickup line. Three, two, one, Wait. go.
1: What do you mean by pickup line? Oh,
0: you're right. That was bad. All right, Nick. All right, Mitchell. Uh, you're going to chug your drink, uh, and then you're going to hit me with with a sweet intro in three, two, one.
1: Hey, everyone. How's it going? It's Nick here with Kendall doing this podcast.
0: For no. Ready?
1: Three, two, one. Uh, wait. So what? Hi, and welcome to the Mechanical Advantage podcast. Uh, it's Nick Mitchell here with Kendall Samuels. Your host for this
0: podcast. Um, All right, I'm having you start over because I do not have an S on my last name.
1: Hi, and welcome to the Mechanical Advantage Podcast. It's Nick Mitchell here with Kendall Samuels. Your host for this podcast. I
0: don't have a S on the end of my name. That's that's about as amateur as it gets.
1: What was one saying?
0: I can't do this intro. Let's start the podcast.
1: Hey everyone, how's it going? This is Nick here with Kendall, your host for the Mechanical Advantage podcast. So, Kendall,
0: uh, what are the goals for this podcast? Why are our listeners here? So, if any of you have been familiar with us as a team, Mechanical Advantage Racing, we've kind of come together as a group of engineers. And in the past, we've noticed some interesting, I guess you could call it, debates on the internet over various topics. And if there's anything that can kind of, I guess, get on the nerves of a group of engineers is when there's false information floating around. So what we wanted to do is try and bring in some different experts on various topics. And each month will be a different topic going through different aspects of either motorsports or engine building, suspension design, suspension assembly, down to the component pieces. And just to interview these people from a technical background and try and bring that information to light. Most of the things that normally you wouldn't have access to that that we've learned over time. So that's essentially what we're trying to do.
1: So we're going to bring some experts on here to uh, talk about some of the details that the general person wouldn't necessarily know, correct?
0: Yeah. And uh, for example, a lot of our team, about half of uh, of the team, our engineers at Honda of America and within that not just our teammates but their bosses people up the chain who have been in the company for you know 20 plus years it would be great people to interview from the aspect of uh, what does it take to build an engine to rev to 9 plus 1000 rpm or what are some technical details and hardships that were encountered when the NSX was designed things like that, that the general public just wouldn't know. And we have a ton of different people that we've, we've gotten to meet and become friends with over the time that we've been in, in the industry that would love to talk about the things that they've dedicated their life to for the past uh, you know decade. And it would just be very interesting to let some other people that just don't have that window to see.
1: Nice. So, uh, well... Obviously, you've been in the industry for a little bit of time. So today, we're going to do something a little bit different. Instead of going in-depth versus
0: someone to interview,
1: uh, we're going to talk about how uh, Kendall got into the
0: automotive industry.
1: So, uh, Kendall,
0: how did you start? So even uh, – it's kind of funny because even you, I don't think, know the, the full background. Uh, I, um, I have
1: pieces, but I don't know the, the actual full story.
0: Well, the beginning, you'd, you'd be proud. It's since diverted into the areas that – Uh, you know, into tuner cars, which I know have never been your personal favorite. But it actually started back when I was like, I'd say 15 would be a a good age when I got my learner's permit. And at that time, my brother, who's two years older, he had an Audi A6. And, you know, he put gauges in it, a cold air intake and uh, was trying to soup it up as much as he could on a high schooler's budget. He was a junior in high school at that point. And being as competitive as we were, all I wanted to do was beat him. And my, you know, my birthday's coming up, I'm gonna have my driver's license. So what could I get that would be able to beat that car? And it, it's really funny looking back now, because pretty much anything would beat that car. But what <laughs> I wanted to do, I was obsessed with the first generation Firebird's the 67, 68 and 69 firebirds. Yep. So that's where, you know, I know you're, you're the V8 guy. You love all the, you know, the LS platform and everything, but that, you know, that firebird was what I wanted and I specifically wanted it because I thought the Camaro was the coolest thing ever. Uh, that first gen Camaro. But what I hated about the Camaro was that everyone wanted the Camaro, but you could get the Firebird, which was like the kind of niche same car that you didn't have to be quite as cookie cutter and have the same thing that everyone wanted. And yeah, I, I was, I was real obsessed with it. I found one and I went, my dad was nice enough to go and drive me up to the mountains just outside of Denver. And we went and looked at this thing and you know, this guy had, repainted it he put i don't remember what it was like a 350 engine in it and he had just finished it so he was going to test fire it right when we got there and what he had forgot to do was connect one of the coolant lines off of the water pump and when he fired it my dad got sprayed down with coolant and that <laughs> was the last time i was ever allowed to look at a muscle car i've never seen him so so angry in my life so we had a really quiet ride home and that was that was that. And I ended up with a, a Chevy Blazer, a 97 Chevy Blazer. And I hated that thing more than you can even imagine. So I instantly sold it. And the new prerequisite for my parents was I wasn't allowed to get anything that couldn't drive in the snow. So the Blazer was four wheel drive. They weren't about doing any muscle car stuff, so I had to look for an alternative, and I did not want to copy my brother and do a Euro route, so I ended up finding a a 2003 WRX, and that WRX that I found was in Lincoln, Nebraska, so it was like a six-hour drive away, and I had a friend who was going on a tour of the college there, so he brought me out there, and I bought that car, and I had six hours to learn how to drive stick. I had never driven stick before in my life. I couldn't, couldn't test drive the car. I had to have the dude who owned it test drive it. And I told him when to floor it and how to do things to try and make sure it wasn't going to fall apart.
1: Wait, so you went from looking at a muscle car,
0: a Firebird, into looking yes. at a WRX. Yes. And to I, be honest, I, I knew about nothing about either of the platforms other than they were both fast cars and one was rear-wheel drive and one was all-wheel drive. And my parents would let me buy the all-wheel drive one, but yeah, rear-wheel drive wasn't going to fly. Rear-wheel drive won't fly. Yeah. Well, that
1: is, yeah. I, so you were almost a muscle car person. Almost. almost. I
0: was one, cool, one coolant line away from being a muscle car owner. My whole life would be different if that coolant line was cinched down.
1: Yeah, well, I think that is that is one of GM's uh, maybe not strongest suits is the rubber they use for. And it had nothing horses. to they... do with
0: the rubber. It, it was <laughs> this line was just hanging out. It was like <laughs> a, you know a, a fire truck like without the people holding the hose. It was just flying around and spraying my dad in the face. It was pretty great. Uh, one uh, terrifying at the time, but one of the best like memories to laugh at and look back on. But yeah, it ended up where I was. Uh, The WRX seemed logical and it was a good platform and there was lots of parts for it. So I pursued it. I really wanted to get an Evo, but the Evos were just too expensive. There wasn't, I I couldn't afford an STI. I, I couldn't afford the Evo, but the WRX, I found a really good deal on one. So I got it and the guy had to put it in the middle of the street. Just because so, I couldn't pull out of his driveway. I tried like seven times. I couldn't figure out how to turn the car on because I didn't know you had to push a clutch in. I think, uh, to, I think that gets every it. manual driver for the first time. Yeah. So in the end, I, I got pretty good at it. My strategy coming home was rev the car to 5,000 RPM and drop the clutch. So I just launch it every time at every stop sign. and I, I thought I looked like a badass, but it was probably pretty evident that I didn't know how to drive. So, yeah. Anyway, that was the very beginning. And I got that car home and I did what every WRX owner does. And I put all of the STI cosmetic stuff on it. So it had the wing. I put wheels on it. I tried to make that thing. I I put the STI decals on the doors. I put the badge on the like uh, uh, the, the pink eye badge on the front grill. And I debadged the trunk and put an STI badge on the trunk. I did all of that to try and make it look like an STI, which, you know, if anyone's into Subarus, they know that there was no bug eye STI in the U.S. So it was pretty, it was a pretty bad attempt. Uh, Are, wait, so you badged the car out and went full ricer
1: for your first modifications.
0: Oh, it, it is seriously the, it was the riciest car you could. It had a black hood scoop. It had black side skirts. It had a black rear wing. I put a roof, the roof spoiler that the 06, '07s had, that was black. The car was silver. This thing, like, it was like not color color matched. Uh, there was random pieces all over it that weren't uh, the right color. I put all these stickers on it. I tinted the windows real dark. I put STI seats in it. And the most baffling thing happened is like two months after owning it, I got offered 14 grand for it and I had paid six and, you know, put maybe a thousand bucks in just random cosmetic things. So it was gone. And then, and then I had an actual STI at that point because that was enough to buy an STI. So it, it was pretty cool. There you go, folks,
1: a lesson in hustle, go put all the badges on, if you, if you think it will be an STI, it will come. Someone will yes. eventually buy it for the price you need to go buy the STI. So just wait.
0: Yeah, and of course, it, it, I, I didn't even learn anything. I put more stickers on the STI. I bought the Ken Block decal kit off eBay and duplicated his version one Gymkhana car with all of the monster decals and everything. And then uh, I tried to do my own Gymkhana in a neighborhood and was doing donuts and drifts, and then the center differentials started making horrendous noises, which actually is my highest viewed video on YouTube on the Mechanical Advantage page, because apparently I'm not the only one to do this. Uh, and people are looking for why their center diffs sound like you know a bucket of marbles. <laughs> so I really screwed that transmission up and I didn't know what to do and you know just started saving to fix it and it wasn't like a week later that someone ran a red light and T-boned that car on my first day of college and i ended up getting paid out by insurance and moved on and bought a an 05 sti that had a full rotated Garrett turbo kit with a Cosworth long block in this nuts car and again i did not learn anything and I was basically hammering that thing. You know, you're an 18-year-old with 500 wheel horsepower at a time when no one had 500 wheel horsepower. This was, uh, I think, 2012, and I ended up cracking a piston in that engine and was in a real rough situation because I had just spent all my money on this car. I had like a thousand dollars to my name, and was kind of perusing Craigslist for any sort of engine to get the car running. And I ended up finding a built engine on Craigslist. Like I wanted like five grand or something, which was fair. And I had a thousand dollars. So I offered him a thousand dollars and through a bunch of negotiation, he ended up taking it and I tossed that engine in the car. And that was like the most solid. I, I ended up learning to road race on that engine, I drag raced on that engine. I, I ran that thing for like 50,000 miles and then ended up selling that car to buy what is now the slum dog. I couldn't afford being, you know, 18, 19 years old, I couldn't afford the insurance on a vehicle like that. So my thought was I have this Cosworth long block that's sitting on an engine stand that needs to be rebuilt. So I have an engine, I just need to find a car for it. And I sold that STI for like 24000 or something and located a, a Coupe Impreza 2.5 RS out in Virginia that had a STI wiring harness merge and a six-speed in it. And the guy shipped it over. I think it was 6000 shipped and he shipped it to me. And when I got it, I learned how to rebuild an engine and I tossed it in and we had Iteration one of Slumdog and iteration one didn't go so hot. That first rebuild was pretty terrible. It I ended up using so much RTV, putting everything together that basically my engine was being lubricated on all the RTV that sheared off and started floating in the oil and clogged the oil pickup. So, it, it, you know, it was a solid like uh, five minutes of runtime. So uh, a Lesson shop learned, called there. Met... Yeah, a big lesson learned for anyone building a Subaru: more RTV is not your friend, and your engine does not di- digest it. It just clogs up. It's like getting a, a milkshake with too many things in it, too many chocolate chips, and it clogs the straw, and you don't get any of your milkshake.
1: I'm sure we'll get more in depth on on some of the uh, adhesives you should use when uh, putting those blocks together, as I've I've also oh, heard yeah. some other
0: horror stories. But oh, uh, there's many. That's 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 a year worth of of podcasts is figuring out the nuances and Subaru engines. So, so your first starter car was a WRX figured out how to trade that up to an
1: STI. Unfortunately that one didn't make it too long. And then you got a, a, a built one and you learned how to swap engines in that one, which is potentially a lesson lesson learned on when you buy fully modified cars without knowing any information about them. Sometimes things go awry. But
0: yeah, and that's looks that like you made the enough.
1: best out of it because uh, it looks like you learned how to to do road racing and drag racing on that car, huh?
0: Yeah, that that one, that car taught me a lot, and you know, as you mentioned, when buying a a built car, I, I kind of made it sound like it was my fault, and in, in a way, it did break because I was beating on it. But the the sad reality of it was the shop that had built that engine did not gap the piston rings. They just tossed them in out of the packaging. So the piston ring gap was almost nothing. So when you have someone who goes to beat on it and they, you know, they're putting a lot of heat in the engine, the rings closed. And that's what ended up cracking uh, the top of the piston. So it's kind of a bummer had they gapped the rings. Uh, it might not have turned out that way. But then you
1: might not have learned how to swap an engine and we wouldn't be here. So
0: yeah, you know, lesson yes. learned. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, and and all that happened uh, while I was at school for mechanical engineering. So it was really kind of interesting to see some of my classes and and how things work, mechanical systems, and then to be able to apply it in a in a real world scenario. And you know, I, I'm that's the way I learn. I I'm more the person who learns from trying and failing than the person who wants to keep reading and be very analytical. And, and there's, there's some validity to both, both sides, but I know that it will not sink in unless I fail. And all of the, the things I learned from that car, as much as it was a horror story at the beginning, it did teach me a lot. And it taught me a lot to go into the next build and, and learn financially how to uh, put a car together cheaper and make it faster. And, and once, once the slumdog, really got running, I had networked with a shop called Metro performance, which is now Metro performance of SoCal. They were the ones that tore down the Cosworth long block and it wasn't, it was a Cosworth long block that was, uh, refreshed. So that's, that's why, uh, piston rings weren't gapped, but, um, they had torn it down and done that analysis. And, and in the end, they they ended up building the short block and cylinder heads for uh, slumdog. And I put the heads on the block with my friend Brian, and we timed the engine up and and got the car going. And that first build on Slum Dog did I believe it was a 1097. So it made it into the 10 second quarter mile times at Vandermeer Speedway. And it was the most impressive thing because I had maybe $10,000 invested in the car. And I had built a 10 second car as a junior in high school or in college. Sorry. And that's it, 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 so a 10 second car
1: is impressive, especially as a junior in high school, but college. even more, imp- or sorry, college, but even more impressive is a 10 second car at the uh, years in which you were doing this. Cause I mean, nowadays and, a and lot of, at, it's at, a lot easier, but what, at what, what year did you end up actually
0: building a 10 second car? Out of a I Super? think it was t- 2014 and you got to keep in mind, this is at a mile high altitude as well. That track, it was only like last year where someone, uh, actually started digging deep into the nines there. It's been a battle for a long time to get into the nines. At the point in time when I did the 10-9, I think there was four Subarus total that were able to do it. There was Ben Hockman, there was Aaron Worsinger, Metro Performance had a shop car that just touched like a 1099. And then I believe, uh, I don't know if Steve Task ever did it. If you ever see the Subaru, the black Subaru video next to a GTR, that people always share that's Steve's GTR he used to have a Subaru which is that video is hilarious because his car was detuned they wouldn't let him run faster than a 100 so he just dialed it exactly to a 100 but yeah there was uh, there was only a handful of cars and I had made it into that group and the more I drag raced uh, the more I realized that you know to go any faster than that you're going to the it gets exponential cost wise and I wasn't sure I wanted to really spend the money to try and pursue that drive to hit a nine. And there was an open lapping day out at High Plains Raceway, uh, which I had been before in the other STI. And if you worked as a corner worker, you could get free track time. So I did that and I got an instructor as well. And it was like the best time. It it, w- it was the most addictive thing. So that became it, I started tracking on the road course. And it, it, there was some SCCA events and the car did phenomenal. Uh, it, to, to this day, I still don't know because I don't know how I did that. I think a lot of it was based on ignorance. Uh, the car setup wasn't very good. I don't think that I was that great of a driver at that point. I was pretty inexperienced, but part of it was that gave me a uh, a hell of a lot of confidence because I just didn't know what could happen. Didn't understand the dangers. I don't have safety equipment in the car. I'm just going to send it. And, you know, it's easy to send it when you don't know what could go wrong. So that was that was pretty much the beginning. Uh, after I graduated college, I got offered an engineering role in the quality group at Honda of America. And that's where they have the engine dyno testing. So they'll do the durability stuff. They set the torque specs for manufacturing and for, the, for service. It's pretty much like all-encompassing of everyone overseeing any aspect of the engine that's critical can go wrong and needs instruction. So I was really excited, and I ended up moving to Ohio, and, and that's where I ended up meeting you and Grant. Nick and uh, pretty much the entire Mechanical Advantage team, we were all in a very similar boat with being in the cars. And I had the, the track bug, so I continued to build the slum dog up with the goal of pursuing the Gridlife series because I knew that there was more to that series than just racing. It was appealing because you can bring your friends, you can be social, and you can work on a car. And you know that kind of is a more well-rounded event. And, and from there, I mean, kind of the rest is history. The team just keeps developing and we, we each dive deeper in our own individual uh, specialty route. Yeah. Yeah, Our, our specialties. Um, uh, Mine has always been engine building, bolt tension, all of that. I've just always been obsessed with the engine side. And that was how I ended up formulating a lot of the sponsorship stuff. I'll take, the uh, prototype parts that any any manufacturer um, wants. So this last season, it was to see how the Cali stroker kit, the 83 millimeter stroker kit they came out with for the Subarus. How does all that work in the engine? What do you need to to machine out of the block to clearance? So that that that's what I love doing. And and what it comes down to is uh, whether the engine fails or not at the end of the season, it needs to come apart and all of it gets shipped back to Cali's and and they review it. And likewise, you know, there was a brief stint where Brian Crower was doing billet Subaru cams. And I was the first one to be testing those to see what power gains um, we could get and, and just try and get some more data for people and, and see if some of our engineering background and feedback can help develop the products. And that's even why we have a dyno now to try and uh, validate some of those numbers. So I think you might have breezed over that. So uh, you built your you built Slumdog basically
1: during your college years when you're in Colorado, and you went to school f- at School of Mines, correct, for mechanical engineering, and then and that's how you end up with the job as a engineer in Honda for. Uh, yeah,
0: quality, and, and right? Hon- H- Honda really wanted me in there their engine department, I didn't end up or initially interviewing for that role. But after the interview, it became very obvious because in college, I was building tons of engines and seeing what different combos were possible. I wanted to see if we could add like a Nicosil lining into the Subaru blocks. If you could spray in the cylinder liners that dirt bikes use and what like now the new NSX uses, and run a smaller piston so you could get thicker cylinder walls. What's bizarre, if you dig deep enough into the mechanical advantage page, before closed decks were even really a thing, I had welded up the coolant ports on a Subaru block and put it into the CNC that the school had and milled down and made my own closed deck block. That said, I, I didn't ever feel comfortable enough or confident enough to run it. But I was trying really bizarre things to to try and get these engines to hold together, and I was doing it on like you know a, a budget of pennies
1: uh, yeah, so I guess part of racing goes with everyone everyone has a budget and it's kind of a, a test and tune, kind of regardless of what aspect of racing you're doing. so if you're drag racing you're pretty much testing and tuning until showtime and when you're road racing you're also testing and tuning potentially even during the race so it's kind of crazy that you were you were welding well trying to weld a closed deck block uh, probably way before closed deck was actually a by
0: today's standards for Subarus it seems more common now. It's almost mainstream now back then at that point in time Outfront had come out with like their version one closed deck and no one trusted it because it was just this bizarre new thing no one had seen and yeah that's why i figured well i'll I'll try and make one myself and see what happens and and it's unfortunate i wish i still had that block but i tried concreting a block doing the old school muscle car method and buying concrete and just filling that thing up that was another that one looked real gross i ended up throwing that block away but uh, again you know you're working on those penny budgets and i wasn't afraid to to try it and see what happened. And worst case, I learned something for a couple hundred bucks and I move on. And yeah, it's, it's brought me to where I am now, which essentially after a few years at Honda, I was coming from Colorado. I was a little sick of Ohio. So I wanted to get back to mountains, but I wanted to stay on the East coast where all the racing was. So I ended up applying in Asheville, North Carolina, which is like, Right in the mountains, not far from Tale of the Dragon. That's like, you know, just over the mountains here. And that's where Borg Warner is, Borg Warner Turbo Systems. So I, I joined the mechanical systems group doing ball bearing development. And now I'm currently over in the actuation group doing the, the mechanical system of the wastegate valves, the shaft, the bushing, and the actuator for uh, like almost all of their applications of turbochargers from CV past car and you know anything in between really and yeah i i just keep keep kind of g- going along and seeing what what else uh, comes about yeah so wow so you had a kind of a unique unique start almost went
1: for a muscle car went through a few subarus went to the slum dog and then I've uh, kind of worked worked that through its, uh, the paces of different stages of...
0: It, it was more than a few Subarus. I, I mean, I skipped a lot in there. There was, there was actually 14 Subarus while I was in college. Only a couple that were really memorable. The rest were just to build and, and make some power and flip. But I, I know you have some some background in Subarus and, and some other vehicles. So why don't you uh, you tell us how you got to where you're at?
1: Well, I guess it really depends on when we want to start my car background. Originally, very beginning, very beginning. Okay, well, that would be
0: two year old Nick Mitchell
1: to the old Nick Mitchell. Well, I would say the first Nick Mitchell. Yes. (laughs) Well, I don't know about if it was two year old Nick Mitchell remembers, but Nick Mitchell remembers back when his father actually purchased a 95 Camaro Z28, which would be the LT1 version. That was probably the car that got me interested in cars, just from, you know, the, the rumble of the V8. To the power you could feel in it and and I was a little kid back then and it was like fun to go like when you had to go to baseball practice dad would go take you to baseball practice in the Camaro and and it'd be a fun time so that that was probably probably the start of my interest into, into the automotive world um, going from there actually and then if we're gonna move we'll jump on forward to my first car was actually so when I was researching trying to get you know get a get a car. I, my parents, they wanted me to get something safe, right? So I, was, I tried to convince them to buy me an, an Eclipse because they didn't know that the Eclipses came in, in turbo and you could actually modify them and, and make them actually go fast. Unfortunately for me, they chose to get me a 2000 Eclipse, which had a 4G64, but not a 4G63 with a turbo. Uh, unfortunate, unfortunate thing for me because that car was not very fast. Even though, even though it wasn't very fast, I, I put me on a, a nice Ricer muffler and put some nice rims on it, and I I drove that thing and kept it nice until I got to college, where uh, technically, maybe even before college, I got my first job and started getting some money, and went to the dealership, it was you know, Ray trade trade my car in and the, the dumb dealership guy d- thought it was a good idea to let me drive a WRX as a manual without me knowing how to drive manual. So I stole that thing a lot of times on our test drive, and I left the dealership that day going, you know, thanks, you know, and uh, he, he had no clue that I'd come back the next day and say, yeah, I'll buy it. Um, he thought I was a dumb, dumb kid, and he was really pissed off the first day I I came in driving, installed it all day, but he was a lot happier the second day I came in. And in 2006, I ended up buying my uh, Subaru WX new and traded in my Eclipse. So that's kind of. I don't
0: want to. I don't want to jump ahead because I don't know where the story's going. But is this Subaru the one that you actually started learning how to tune in in? just just learning the process of hacking the oem ecu yes that is the
1: yes correct i i bought a brand new car to learn how to tune cars so So did
0: you do that like immediately or was it years later how how long did you own this car what was the process was it like day two of owning it you're absolutely not to figure out the ecu no
1: i was still trying to figure out how to drive manual when i first owned it and it's it's kind of funny so that car would be the car that got me like really into wanting to mod my car and really get into, into, you know, I would say per se racing. I was a member of it would be Tampa Bay racing. It was a forum back then. I know now everything's on Facebook, but back then the forums were where you went to, to get information on racing. So I was always on, on the, on TR. And and I'd always try to give people good information and they ended up, you know, where I was from or near, near me, there was something called the Hudson meet. And so I'd go every Friday night to the Hudson meet and you'd have 20, 30 different cars, all different modifications. And I ended up meeting my buddy Derek there and we'd, uh, he had a Camaro on the way back. We ended up racing one time and I got beat by him. I was like, what the hell? I was like, like you just bought a darn stock Camaro. Like I I was like, it, that kind of became the rivalry between, you know, the WRX and the Camaro. And so from then on, it was, how do I make my car go faster? And I was like, well, I'm not a really good driver. So I better figure out how to make my car go faster because my driving skills aren't going to improve to beat people. Uh, And that's, that's kind of when I decided uh, tuning would be my, my advantage. And I was not very rich back then and was trying to do things on a budget. One of the first things I ended up doing was for WRXs, I'd already researched all all of what you do. It was, hey, you go throw a downpipe on the car. So I ended up putting a downpipe on the car and leaving the factory muffler. And the car did not like that, not one bit, because it threw check engine lights and went into limp mode and, and did a whole, bunch of st- a whole bunch of stuff. And at that time, I didn't have money to buy an access port. So access ports were available at the time, but they were like, Seven hundred dollars i I could not afford seven hundred dollars and i I went on the forums you know how do you tune or how do you turn off these check engine lights and I ended up finding a site called I think it was ingenuity back then, but it ended up becoming ROM Raiders today one of the two it's either backwards but I ended up going on one of the forums where they stu- they were doing the tatrix cable, so I ended up buying a tatrix cable I ended up going to the site called osecuroms.com and finding a, an ECU ROM and, and flash it on my car. Well, instantly I start going and it, the car pulls ti- like pulls like an ape compared to what it was. And, it, and but, but it ends up like overboosting, hitting boost cut. And then also I'm looking and it ends up having, uh, like detonation. And I'm like, well, what the heck is going on? Like, uh, this doesn't seem good. So I research, read the read the forms a few more times, and I go, okay, well, if you're, you know, how do you tune a car? And it's like, yeah, you just change numbers. It's like, okay, well, that's good. So I ended up going going into the, the timing table, changing one number, one cell in the in the thing, and then flashing it and driving again. I was like, why why didn't that make any changes? Well, as I learned, changing one number and one cell. On an ECU does very little, but as you, as I learned, I ended up eventually learning how to use different Excel spreadsheets and, and different taking in uh, ECU data, taking logs, and then correlating the logs back to what the timing's doing, understanding how it ended up uh, identifying how to
0: timing and basically making,
1: making the car run better.
0: You even took some of the skills you learned in college of your knowledge of Excel spreadsheets and pivot tables to do what some of the modern ECUs are able to do today right using a a target AFR table, your main fueling map, and your data log to actually output a new new fuel table right I do yes I, I you did that before that was even like, I'm not going to say it wasn't a thing because obviously there were some intelligent people out there, I'm sure doing it, but that was long before that was actually like a given parameter or, or, or yeah, so I of so you.
1: Unfortunately I might've missed that. I bought the car in 2006 and it probably wasn't, it was probably maybe 2007 that I was, I was maybe 19 and flashing my car uh, that I still had a loan out for and had no money to pay for. And I ended up learning that the the actual, the tune that I had I pulled off the internet was actually wrong because there was an undefined table that was giving us way too much timing. But essentially, yes, I, I ended up learning um, how to use some of these pivot tables to kind of graph the expected values and then understand that the expected values were not what they should have been and then figure out which tables need to be changed to to make these numbers work. And then eventually the mug bud hits you and and you slowly add more stuff so for that car i started realizing people people were easily beating stock stock turbo wx's but if you modify the turbo and added methanol injection and and stuff like that back in say 2007 2008 it would make a competitive car for street racing especially when they didn't realize what a wx was so my car looked completely stock and. It had an upgraded turbo, methanol injection, bigger intercooler. A lot of people from the muscle car world. I think back then they it would be uh, Mafia Motorsports was the the big group of muscle car owners that ended up one night uh, pissing off pretty bad. But it was a good night.
0: This uh, this borderline sounds like the movie Born to Race. I'm just imagining you, you know, having your buddy tell you to flat foot shift it and you cut two seconds off your quarter mile time and just blow people out of the water uh i know that's not the reality but no that's not the reality the reality was is that i ended up modifying my
1: car to make it faster because i was not very good driver and then i also learned a lot so when you start adding more mods you end up realizing what the changes those mods do i'm sure we'll get more in depth on on tuning uh later in this podcast but essentially Uh, I started out with a WRX. I learned Tune, and that inspired me to go to uh, USF for for engineering, where I ended up learning how to academically engineer items for automotive. And and eventually, through a few different jobs, I ended up applying to Honda, because I always wanted to be at an OEM manufacturer and work for an OEM. And uh, so now I end up Working for Honda in the market quality division, so when people have parts that fail on their cars, the factories typically have a good understanding of what's what's happening and it would be my group that identifies when there's a recall and and how to approach those those issues
0: well and you're looking at basically reports from individual dealers and trying to understand and identify when patterns start emerging, whether or not it's a one off failure or you know a pattern or series of failures, right? and then that's when uh, you'd you'd be the one to submit or request a recall is that right?
1: right so technically my my group would be the ones that would submit the recalls out in the market so all of the hmm. super doesn't have too many uh, notorious problems in reality because the ringland failures were typically due to uh, customer abuse and then uh, after yeah,
0: that. No, and, and and most of the Subaru has earned a really bad name for reliability in the aftermarket industry, which is kind of unfortunate because their cars, from a very stock standpoint, are pretty reliable. Uh, the naturally aspirated ones, even the turbo, the SDI ones, they'll go forever, yeah, but you I modify them. And that's where I'm just going to stop the rabbit hole right now, because I know that's one thing I want to address is, you know, how to build a a Subaru for high horsepower and why it can go wrong very quickly. And again, I'm just going to stop there, but I will say that at stock levels, all of the problems that I have seen and, you know, go through myself, you know, none of that stuff would spur up if you literally never tuned your car and left it completely stock. They designed it for a power level and they, that power level is not 500 wheel horsepower. It's 300 at the engine. So yeah they' you know
1: I definitely agree yeah we working in market quality as well as actually doing it uh, for myself, I know how things can go awry and I know from a tuning aspect what what I have the ability to do so from a tuning aspect, you can tell the car to put a hundred degrees of timing in and that's never going to end good so accidental keystrokes and things like that could easily cause a car to to go into a, a situation that's not very good, yeah, and, I, and I've, I've seen a lot of different ways there's different methods of tuning, and there's there's different things um, that maybe the customer doesn't necessarily or the driver of, of vehicles doesn't pay attention to, that if they saw if they were paying attention to the right variables or the right parameters, they may consider stopping and having the car looked at before they continue to go. So I think that's that's kind of maybe a topic we'll we'll get onto in the future um, as to what what to look for as to what when your car is in a vulnerable situation and maybe
0: you should stop and check it out. Those subjects will will come later. As we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, this one was to just give ourselves a little introduction in the background and how we've ended up where we are today, uh, what we've been through both from our educational side as well as our hobby side of cars. But ultimately, what we'll be doing is interviewing different experts. None of us claim to be experts on every topic. We have our areas we're good in, and there are a lot other areas within the you know vehicles that we aren't. So we'll be trying to bring in a, a new guest host or, or guest each podcast and pick their brain to pull that information out. So stay tuned. This is episode one. And for episode two, we're we're not sure what that'll be. Um, We might be putting out uh, a poll or we'll be taking messages to see what do you want to hear. And we'll bring someone in to address those topics. Yeah, we definitely love feedback. Yeah, some of the things we've been brainstorming, one I personally saw was both well, it's all related to bolt tension. And why is that significant? Bolts hold your engine together. There was a big argument over fasteners that torque to yield and fasteners that are elastic and do not yield when you torque them. And within that is its own subset of doing a straight torque, just taking you know some foot-pound number and torquing, or an angle torque where you're measuring the amount of rotation on the bolt. So... That was a potential one, uh, whether it's next podcast or one in the future. That's something we, we really wanted to address since we have a very good knowledge of that just internal to us. But uh, we'd love to hear feedback on other subjects. We we want to give you guys what you want to hear.
1: Yeah, yeah we, we definitely want to hear some feedback. So hit us up with your, your topics that you want to hear. And, and we'll definitely, if we're knowledgeable on that topic, we'll give you an answer and then... We will also find the experts in that field to help you get the knowledge that you're looking for.
0: All right, let's do it and uh, we'll see you guys on the second podcast.